Hello and welcome to episode 13, unlucky for some, of the Warfighter podcast. I am your host, Tom Cospel, and this is Colin here. Hip. And this okay. is... Well, hello, Tom, and I'm glad you clarified that 13 is unlucky. I don't want to put too much pressure on any of our features for this episode. I, I just ruined the intro, so that's a start, isn't it? But anyway, welcome everybody to the Defence Training and Simulation podcast. Absolute pleasure to have you here. And Colin, how are you? I'm very well. Just for our listeners, look, this won't happen again until we get to episode 113, right? So you can rest assured. Now, we are 100% professional, apart from this one. <laughs> no attachment to any unlucky numbers. I think you and I have been quite busy not least with travels but also doing quite a lot of recordings with various interesting people yeah i mean i thought you were going to mention the potty training that i'm currently going through but not for me obviously for the kid but no the... you're, you're okay aren't you? <laughs> yeah yeah now it's, i am thanks it's, mate. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually you know it's starting to get into its flow i think people are starting to understand what we're about the kind of topics that we cover and people are starting to be recommended to us or, or reach out which is nice which means we've got a serious problem with having a backlog of really quality guests which is a nice problem to have isn't it yeah and quite a wide diverse crew because people from all, all, i think we we're doing one on the on the west coast last week and then out east as well as uh, bits of europe so it's really good to see um now i think we must also mention another very interesting episode we did so we did an interview with jason kennedy from improbable really digging in a bit behind the hood of some of the actual engineering development so that was fascinating i think jason was calling it horizontal scaling and simulation jason covers some really good points on building ecosystems and and how do you pull the best bits from different organizations and technologies to deliver your broad simulation scale so very interesting discussion every day is a school day as they say it's always worth saying that we do appreciate and thank you so much to our lead sponsors improbable for keeping this ball rolling keeping us fine-tuned to this professional level of output but today school day colin what are we going to learn about and who is our guest well we have christina bayless from kinetic so Christina's taking a really interesting look at the problem of how we solve some of the issues in training without just resorting to a new technology. So what are some of the practical issues, you know, procurement issues that we need to solve before we even start to implement technologies? So there's quite a refreshing view. Someone who's got a very different background, not traditional military. And I think that's what we need is different perspectives on solving the problem, getting really down to the nub of what we're trying to achieve rather than going, here's a shiny technology, let's use it <laughs> as much as we like shiny technology. Here it is. So we're very pleased to introduce this episode, Christina Bayliss, who is Director for Training and Mission Rehearsal at Kinetic. For those of you who've not come across Kinetic, it must be <laughs> probably two of you, but uh, Kinetic is one of those organisations that probably best described as they do things you never thought was done, you know, hangers full of clever people and work in all sorts of different things. So always fascinating to hear more about what's going on. But welcome, Christina. Thank you very much for having me. Excited for uh, the conversation. And probably to prep our audience, we're not going to talk about technology today we're going to talk about the things that hold us back that maybe aren't technology but before we dive into the subject can you just give us a little background on yourself and how you got into this position not the podcast I mean the job <laughs> well you know it's, it's 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 funny that you ask because I'm not sure I can point to a very detailed planning in my life in terms of how I end up where I am I was probably most of it through serendipity to a large extent. I did fall into the broader defense and security space early on in my graduate studies. And one thing led to another. I decided not to move into academia or policy and ended up being a consultant working for a wide range of private sector clients on both sides of the Atlantic, both in the US and Europe. And then uh, I joined industry as part of that process. And in my current role, um, leading um, 
the global campaign activities at Kinetic for training and mission rehearsal. I, I felt this now for four years, and um, it was essentially a continuation of uh, group strategy work I was doing, but far more applied in a specific sector and really trying to implement a long-term strategy for the company in this space and transform what we're doing there. So definitely not a straight line, very broad, diverse defense background, more generalist really than a specialist with kind of a, a bit of a policy background, certainly not an engineer. So I'm certainly not representing the brains of Kinetic, I'm afraid. But the vast majority of my cl- of my colleagues are far smarter. A lot of them actually do have military background as well. But this is what makes Kinetic so great. The diversity of backgrounds, the disciplines is really so rich that every day I learn something that we do across the business I wasn't aware that we were doing or somebody who has phenomenal background that is really complementary to what others are doing. And this is what attracted me to the business in the first place. Yeah, never get bored. The topic for this is about how transforming training isn't necessarily just about technology. Could you just give us a bit of an intro to this? There is, um, I don't know if you've come across, I think he's referred to as a sociobiologist, E.O. Wilson. He's actually very known as, a, as an expert on ants and, and, and other aspects. But he made once a comment when he was reflecting about the challenge of humanity, where he said, you know, the, the real challenge is that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions and godlike technology. And I always thought that was a very telling code because particularly when you reflect now how quickly technology changes and the kind of technology we have now that we didn't have even 20, 30 years ago and the rapid pace of change. But we as humans and our institutions are not really evolving at the same pace. And certainly I can't see this in the space that I'm working, training and with a bit more focus on collective training, but you can see it in every walk of life that that is a key challenge. So we have those great AI technologies, synthetic technologies, data technologies, whatever it might be. But are we adapting at the right pace as people and as institutions to really make the most of it? And I think in warfare, that is not new. The ability to really exploit technology to the best effect has been often uh, a function of cultural and institutional adaptability rather than who invented in the first place a certain technology. And I don't think that really differs now. I think the challenge is just that everything has accelerated and you can't just have a single focus whether it's a mission or a threat it's far more diverse and overlapping than it used to be the case in the past so in terms of how you're looking at training transformation i take it there's sort of three main areas that you're looking at that not related to technology so i mean we could probably take up the human the people element first and then we mm-hmm. can talk a bit about institutions and each of them we can unpack them a little bit so if we're talking about humans and people and where we need to be placing the focus on, obviously there will always be training that is essentially basic skills, whether it's manual skills or just how to complete specific tasks. I think where the focus needs to be and where the transformation at the people level needs to happen is one is training for adaptability. Another one is training for decision-making and a different decision-making skills. And I think the other part truly plays a little bit to the institution, but it is ultimately the composition of a very different demographic, is how do we train for a different future force? So let me unpack those three things. The first one adaptability. Now, I think it's fair to say in most training environments, training is often used as a validation activity. You know, you learn certain skills or certain drills or completing certain missions, and you go through a process and it feels like a validation of that. There is very little unpredictability in that. And as we know, for all the reasons that uh, we mentioned earlier on, you know, the, the complexity, the pace of change, the concurrency of activities, threats, effects, 
requires that you actually are training for the unpredictable, right? So we need to be thinking how we need to adapt our training so it is not just rehearsing already learned skills, but adding that element of unpredictability. That is very much linked to the second part, which is training for new, different, expanded decision-making skills. One part is, as I said, being uh, more flexible, more more comfortable with, with ambiguity and uncertainty. But there is also the piece that is really now linked to the technology, the changing technology, as AI becomes a far more prominent aspect of how we will live and fight, and therefore of how we train, the more we bring autonomy in the way we fight, whether it's you know man, man, and man teamings or any other aspects of autonomy, we as the human operators, and I assume we still will have some human operators, unless we're talking about just complete robotic future of warfare, we'll need to be using our brains differently. A, because the questions we need to be able to answer will be different and more complex, and B, because some of those questions we were answering before we do no longer need to answer. You know, you have machines being better suited to this, and therefore we need to revisit what's the added value that we have as operators, as commanders, or whatever it might be. So how do we train for the different type of decision-making skill? And the third piece, which is training for a future force. Now, that might apply differently to different countries. I think in the UK, it's particularly pertinent because of some of the force reductions we've seen. And because in this country, there is the concept of whole force, which really brings into play not just men and women in in uniform, but uh, the civil service, the contractors, importantly, and the reserves, which is quite an important element. And my guess is we will have a significant debate on the use of reserves in the future, because frankly, the numbers will not come anywhere else, most likely, and because the kind of skills we need are residing more in that type of force. So how do we train individually and collectively for that future force and the different demographic that comes with very different ways of thinking? So you know, some countries are already more used to working with reserves, but I think it is fundamentally a, a very different challenge. For many countries, we've traditionally just relied on the regular military component and now have to work with industry in partnerships that, you know, would never have existed previously or with the civilian elements that really bring a very different background and way of thinking. So I would say these would be, I'm sure there's a number of other areas, but these would be three areas at the moment, the human, you know, personal people element that I think will fundamentally transform how we're thinking training at that level. So is this affecting how you think very early on in the sort of training requirements or even maybe the DSAT process? Is that what you're talking about? Thinking before you even get to sort of technology selection, you're thinking about the design? Yeah, I mean, so so you're now going to my, what I would call the institutional challenge and institutional also in terms of the processes that we have adopted and implemented over a long period of time that drives how we do things. So there is, and maybe I misinterpreted your question. So there's one is whether that process is still suited to the changing character of war and therefore the way we need to train, or are you referring to how we'd be doing individual steps given that we'll have to involve probably other elements of the force that we were not probably involved in previously? So maybe I, I need to... Yeah, I mean, I, I sometimes wonder if the military almost is trying to eat itself because what it's very good at is standardization and it's really good at training people the way the warrant officer who's been there 20 years got trained. And what you're talking about, what I'm really interested in is how, how you might break that cycle because I guess if I pick one thing like 
okay, let's say we want a more diverse armed forces. And the reason that might be more diverse is we have more reservists involved, uh, more of a mix. How do we break the cycle and look differently at how we design training? And I'll just add to that using that example of how do we get more reservists? Because as a reservist myself, or historically anyway, I'm very bad reservist these days. But there's one thing saying, well, we're just going to integrate you more. That's there you go. That's that's the future plan. We're going to be better integrated. But actually, we've gone through a few cycles of that better integration where you're partnering with a battalion or whatever it might be. And it just didn't work. So, yeah, what stage of the process does somebody start going, looking historically going, well, just saying it and just making people get together hasn't worked. So how do we approach the design process to make sure or hope that it will do something different in order to get a different effect or outcome? Yeah, and I think part of that, obviously, I don't have your personal experience, you know, having gone through this as a reservist. And um, so I, I can't talk from personal experience. But I think part of that is being very clear about what different elements of the force really bring to bear. I mean, we're not going to create warfighters out of reservists necessarily. They have a distinct contribution to make. And it's understanding in what context, what level of training, what mission they would play into. So how you integrate them, it doesn't mean necessarily that they have to do exactly what everybody else is doing at any point in time. But if you're designing training, and I presume now we're talking obviously collective level that includes non-kinetic effects, includes civilian elements, includes the involvement of technology in ways that disrupts the traditional flow and creates the fog of war. And what is the role that a reservist would play in any future operating environment? And it's you have to build that into the scenario for training, and then you need to obviously execute the training as we speak. Having everyone going through exactly the same training, regardless of role and not just rank, but really role and contribution to the military effect, I don't think that's what we're talking about. And a lot of that has to be far more tailored as well, right? What are the kind of skills that you want to train? So again, if you're a, you know, a cyber expert and you are a reservist, you will have a very specific contribution to make, but you need to be able to integrate into a broader force. And that act of integration, of coordination, you know, communicating during whatever exercise you might be doing, you know, the more traditional command and control activities, how do you do this? How do you train for those things? So I guess we would have to think about specific examples, but we know there are certain skills that will increasingly come from a civilian force. And we shouldn't be expecting that they will have to go through exactly the same training regime that, you know, regular forces will go, but somehow they need to be integrated into the way we do collective training. And there will be procedures and other things that obviously everyone will have to follow. But I guess that goes without saying that the procedural stuff will be covered anyway. Yeah, historically, there's always a tendency for us to equip and train for the last war. That shapes our doctrine and principles. And I wonder, you know, picking up on the early words you use, adaptability, if actually the future training system isn't so much designed for the war we think we're going to fight, but it's a designed with flexibility and adaptability in mind, because it's all about how you react to what this latest threat is, which you won't know if you think about the, the cycles involved, procurement cycles, which we'll go on to, you know, you won't <laughs> be able to predict this. So is that is that what you're talking about? Sort of how you build that flexibility in that you could respond to the latest threat or training requirement? Yeah, I mean, look, you're pointing to much bigger issue, which is, you know, what we procure as systems, equipment, whatever it is, is are these the right things? And obviously that goes beyond training. If anything, the challenge is we buy all of that stuff and we don't do this with training in mind. I mean, putting aside the fact that we might not be equipping ourselves with the right capabilities for the future, how often is training really embedded from the get-go? 
when you buy that capability and training, not just in order to be able to operate it, not counting into the cost of that capability, but what might be the implications of how you train? Because obviously, if you have different assets and capabilities, you might need to adjust how you train as well. So, I mean, I think there's a, it's a more fundamental question around adaptability, and I would go even further, resilience of institutions to changing external developments. And, you know, the traditional hardware approach, obviously, is the most rigid because it doesn't allow you for easy flexibility. You know, the shift to more software-based capability will, should drive greater adaptability because, you know, it will be easier, relatively speaking, to evolve capabilities in a more agile way. But I think training always feels like it's lagging behind, whereas it should be something that should be designed in the way we're thinking about capability from the beginning. I may have misunderstood, but would a practical application of this kind of what we're discussing now be kind of low cost drones, you know, or drones in general? We're seeing it being extremely effective over in Ukraine at the moment. Of course, we've had drones for for a fair time in the military, British military. However, it's becoming more prevalent and being forward mounted more and more with troops. But the training burden, the process required to restrict airspace and get the ability to use these drones on training exercises is still extremely complex. And I get the feeling that drones are going to be synonymous with every single, you know, artillery with the infantry with other units so they should be getting used to using it all the time and getting the benefits from it but it's very hard to do training with drones these days and close down the airspace etc so is that an example of where we haven't thought about how to make training with this new bit of equipment as easy and as flexible as we possibly can in order to get the effect upstream when we actually have to use it for real on a battle space yeah i mean of course this is a challenge maybe quite particularly the british isles i guess because we are far more <laughs> yeah. constrained when it comes to space i think in the u.s and australia that might be less of a challenge in terms of being able to train. So I think there are some technical challenges to do that kind of training in the UK or certain parts of Europe. You know, we have to overcome them. And, you know, there are areas where, you know, with the right safety and, and assurance in place, you know, it is possible to do this. You don't have the same flexibility, let's be clear. It's not it's not like being in some of the big spaces you have, you know, Central US or, or Australia. I mean, I think there is a broader challenge of, of think you're hinting at, which is the regulatory system needs to be able to adapt faster in order to get there. This is not obviously at the expense of uh, basic levels of safety and security that we always need mm-hmm. to be thinking about, but that is a challenge. And I think this is where increasingly we see the use of experimentation being very valuable. And that's another aspect that certainly starts to change and challenge how we're thinking about training. So the more you're willing to experiment with different technologies, different techniques during training and becomes more of a way of operating, you create an environment in which then you start creating that regulatory environment where that can happen. And, you know, you can create areas and spaces if if we're talking about physical life environment uh, where you might be able to do this. But some things you just can't get away with. And some of that is a political decision of whether you're going to allocate priority for some of the military capability capability for some of the civilian uh, infrastructure. Before we move on to the next thorny topic, I will pick on one thing you're talking about, um, how you train for better decision-making skills. And do you think that when we think about the training design, we need to develop systems, especially in the collective space, where you've got an environment that's safe to fail, safe safe to make mistakes, because then you'll be better when you're in in your live job. Yeah, I think this is being recognized increasingly by the end user. You know, I mean, I think maybe our traditional way of thinking about how soldiers or commanders react 
I think increasingly, certainly, I hear this a lot from customers. So there is a recognition that, as I mentioned, training shouldn't be seen as a validation exercise, because obviously, if you fail this, then if you don't get validated, it feels like a failure. But it is a learning opportunity, right? So once you turn it around and saying, this is about really getting better, this is about increasing competence, you actually want to fail, because that's the way you're going to learn. So there is a cultural mind shift. And it's one of those things where if not everything is green, at the end of the process. And by the way, I do need some objective validation that you know my data tells me that I am doing well or not. It can't be just my instinct or my experience as a commander. It is still important. Don't think me wrong. There is a subjective element you can never take away uh, from a commander's you know responsibility. But it's the ability to look at the facts and saying we have a major issue. We have a gap in this area, and therefore, what are we going to do to improve this? Rather than we pass the exercise next step. So I think there's a broader culture shift but and I don't think that there is any institutional to institution in the West or in the UK in particular where we're looking to hide behind some of those issues. If anything, the, the war in Ukraine and the intensification of international relations environment has brought some of those things to to, to bear. And I think a recognition that we can't afford going to war and finding out that all of this was just a you know a screen and we actually we didn't have the competence the right levels of performance the resilience to really achieve um, the right effect so i think this is a serious concern for many and not just because of the budgetary pressures it's because the realization that that aspect is is so critical to the success of any military force i'm glad you instantly went to the cultural thing because definitely the feedback from the larger exercises when let's face it they don't happen that often and therefore you're very much on show so as a senior commander or even a, a private soldier you want to look good you want to have your skills and drills and talk the talk and get it right because you only get one shot so how do you develop a culture that says if you ain't failing you ain't training in the yeah, right way i really want to see that and I, i'm excited for that if we ever get there but i do feel for that the young platoon commander who's just joined the battalion who goes on this big exercise is their first big exercise it's not just the senior or the junior level this is his or her soldiers will be judging that young platoon commander on the way they oh, perform. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Judging on, on every way, you know, being given clear direction support from the platoon sergeant, whoever it might be. But so, yeah, how do we change that so that we see it as a positive thing? As long as it's been done in the right way and the and the rationale behind the outside the box thinking or the, the not scared to fail was, was done in the right way, then it should be applauded. And that, that person be seen as he or she would be someone that actually will most likely keep me alive when I go to war because we have to think outside the box because we can't think like a automaton. So yeah. yeah. No, but I think it's like any learning process, right? I mean, if you do it in very big leaps, there is a risk. So if you wait until the big exercise to see whether, you know, you're ready, then you will be exposed. And, And you better be quite confident that your team, your battle group, whatever the size is, is competent to have reached that level. It's all throughout also to lower levels, right? And there are so many opportunities to make the training more challenging, more immersive, and actually more frequent, right? I mean, this is, again, where technology can be so useful. You could, today, with with fairly immersive synthetic environments, really drive more frequent training. And frequency is as important as it's always been, right? 
And again, there is an element of not just, again, this is not the predictability aspect. It's about the more practice you have, the better you will be. So we have to increase the intensity of the experiences early on. If you can very quickly pass from one level to the next, kind of check the box, well, I really didn't feel those skills, but I'm good in others, so it's good enough to progress. You reach a higher level, and at that point, you can't really redress you know, those issues. It's way too late. Yeah. So I think it is a learning process. And then if you've really done this and that kind of idea of being mission ready, you know, we have that level of confidence in the institution. We've reached the right levels of competence. I think I think it can work, but it is, you know, I think we're probably spending too much focus on those large exercises. It really starts at, you know, those smaller formations um, mm-hmm. and that, you know, continued experience of learning so that you know there's a different levels of complexity at each level and therefore you will be learning something different but you hope is there's not something fundamentally wrong that we missed throughout the process because we were more keen to progress rather than correct some of those obvious shortcomings i think these are really interesting concepts that we'll probably keep coming back to when we do these these chats because there's definitely some cross-threading in some of the other interviews we do but it's really easy in these circumstances to then point the finger and say well uh, uh, you know the problems the procurement system or the way the structures but clearly that might need to change and I'm interested in your views of how you see that changing from a constructive way to be able to do these sort of things yeah and you know i think we would all agree that the traditional acquisition system is not suitable to training today or in the future particularly collective training and i think there's a number of reasons so we think about what what are the components of an acquisition system so you have the requirements piece you have the funding element and you have kind of the ability to manage those acquisitions so the funding piece this has always been a perennial challenge, right? And it links to what I said earlier. Training is kind of always an afterthought. So you fund it last, and it's the first thing you cut when you need to, to, to find some savings. So I think there's a fundamental issue about how we fund training in our overall plans, and they're not sufficiently integrated with other aspects of military capability. The requirements piece is linked to that pace of change and also the adaptability we've been talking about. When your requirements change as quickly as they now seem to be the case with training, because we're not having a monolithic threat, that it's the one that we need to be trained and equip ourselves against, you need to change those requirements more frequently. You know, you can't set a requirement and say that's going to be for the next three or four years. And in the area of training, traditional operational training, the people who set the requirements and the people who procure against those requirements you want to be that gap as small as possible because you want the system to be agile, to be able to respond to the changing requirement. And like with any institution, when you create layers, there are the buyers and there are the requirement setters and you know there are the operators, that starts creating friction in a system where you may need to change something within months, right? So you have that challenge. And then the management piece has to do with having competent individuals who understand the business of defense procurement. And traditionally, that's been left to civilians, right? Certainly in the UK, we've done this. I think it's interesting that in the US, you have quite a lot of senior persons in uniform that do fulfill some very critical procurement functions. And in fact, you could have a very 
successful career, having spent a lot of time doing procurement. And I think it's important because the direct link to the end user, to what actually operator needs, and the organization owning the responsibility for delivering you know, the kit and equipment is quite important. So this is not to say let's have the military fund and procure everything on its own, but it does point to the need of strengthening the commercial and the procurement function within the services. I would say in particular with regard to aspects of military capability, that are more subject to continued change. I mean, it's the same debate where, you know, you want your military to be intelligent, quote-unquote, enough when they buy technologies, right? And that's why some of the more junior members of the military tend to be more up-to-date with the latest technologies. But you need to have the basic knowledge, competence, understanding to make sure that ultimately your acquisition process serves your, your needs as an operator. It's probably fair to say that in the procurement arms they probably have quite a good depth of experience but I guess in the military side we don't have a branch called simulation technician not in the UK military it does in the US and I've often wondered if that's part of the issue in terms of that intelligent customer or intelligent user that actually has people that they can go to internally that understands a bit about what they're actually getting into when either from a technology or the, the training design perspective. Yeah I mean you definitely want to have sufficient expertise in-house for things that would be deemed critical to your capability. And that is relevant also to, to something we've covered previously, which is institutional resilience. There is a risk if you, quote unquote, either outsourced the activity to a civilian organization or to industry so much that, you know, you can't play anymore that intelligent role sufficiently. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a careful balance because at the same time, and again, every country has it, has it, is that challenge is slightly different, you're already short of people, right? And so inevitably, you will have to rely on a non-regular aspect to fit that, whether it's reserve, whether it's a contractor, whatever it is. So we'll have to rethink institutionally what that means, because they need to be working very close together. You'll need to remove some of the barriers and stovepipes that might have existed organizationally and culturally across those various groups. Because inevitably, they will have to work together, but in a very different way. And this is where the operationalization of something like the whole force concept is so important. I think we all instinctively understand why it's important, but it's so hard to operationalize it because it is not just a matter of just getting two, three different types of people together to work. You have to fundamentally change how you do things. I think there's an interesting point that Tom touched on earlier about use of reservists. I mean, traditionally you go, right, you're in this regiment reserve and uh, yeah, we're going to put a weapon in your hands and you're going to go and get dirty. Well, actually, if you look at what they do during their day jobs, there might be an IT systems engineer or a programmer and they would be absolutely in their element if you got them looking at simulation technologies or training design and maybe there's a way you know you're, you're absolutely right our armed forces don't have enough people that's the bottom line yeah. so how do you solve that and maybe there are some really innovative ways we can draw on those specializations no you're right and i think you know serving in the armed forces might mean something very different 10 years from now you might have mechanisms where you know part of your career might be that you spend a number of years in the armed forces as opposed to somewhere in the private sector and that that is something that is enhancing your skills your career prospects but that means that both sides the military the private sector think differently about the human capital 
And you already see it in some areas where you have those lateral entries into the military institution. You have sometimes individuals who've had no military background and then join the military in a certain role to fulfill you know, certain activities that require certain skills. So I think increasingly there is a much more open mind around this. I know we're going into a very critical area, which is about recruitment, obviously, you know, how we recruit, retrain, retain individuals both within the military and the private sector. In some ways, you have to think about this as a holistic problem. Them, right, because you won't have enough square to go across both. So, how can you share, if you will, that human capital, make the most of it? So, this is where you know we have to rethink what it means to join the armed forces or make a career or a part-time, you know, involvement. What is that, and how do we adjust the way we operate, we promote, we engage across those boundaries? I just make a plea to anyone that's looking into the reserve and regular integration and recruitment retention. Just please do see reservists as different beasts because they are currently reservists volunteer their time. Therefore, we do have to look after, and I'm not saying because I just have been one, but we have to look after them in a different way. We have to give a, put a bit of an arm around them and say, look, come on, come to training. It's going to be good. You're going to enjoy it a lot more than we have to worry about with regulars, even though I would argue we, we should still be doing that with our regular personnel as well. We should be looking after them, making sure they feel fulfillment from their job, but very much some, on the reservist side. And I also so we'll say that, again, from my experience, that often regulars are actually quite intimidated by reservists because they do have different experiences and they, they have different careers that are in a world that regulars probably haven't yet experienced. So actually, there's the, they are bringing different viewpoints. And also, they feel a little bit threatened sometimes because how possibly could a reservist come and turn up to my exercise and they're an infantry platoon, but I've been training with my infantry platoon for the last six months nonstop. So how could they possibly even suggest that they're the same cat badge role that we are and again it's about that education piece to explain to the regulars or reservists the differences between them the value add that they bring and the specific roles that they will play in the future and it's just a communication to not be intimidated or look down upon it's the opposite it's seeing each other for the values that they bring that's just my little soapbox i'll get down off but hopefully that's and i think that it goes the other way as well right i mean increasingly in fact that's probably now the standard most individuals who've gone into the armed services have had a second career outside those institutions right Right? And sometimes that immersion, that exposure can happen earlier when you start thinking about a whole force. So actually, that should make it also smoother in terms of transition to civilian world. And you might have you no know, more embedded opportunities where as part of you know, your service, you do spend some time in industry in a role that supports your service. So again, it's, a, it's about rethinking how we do this. And there is those countries who are short of personnel, which tend to be most, because that's a really important consideration. Um, I mean, you raise a really interesting concept there. The military is often a one-way valve, isn't it? Once you leave, that's it. And there are some trades where people go back in. But I think dentists and, and uh, doctors, they, they tend to rotate. But if you had a way that you could either job swap or go, yeah, look, you can leave at seven years, but do come back at year 10 and come and do a three-year posting and, and then go back into that job. And and as you say, where national service isn't something to be endured, but actually it's a building block as part of you and your role. And I know, hey, we can go and do management training and we go and do the management training that's like the Royal Marines and we learn about team building and, and command as civilians, that's valuable, isn't it? That happens all the time. I think isn't the England, England football squad go and do the um, the Woodbury uh, common assault course. That's one of the things they do you know, before a big game to build the team. And, and you know, so, so this cross-pollination maybe, and then the military aren't so big and scary. There's better understanding in the population of what the job they do and vice versa. Yeah. I mean, I think just to bring it a little bit back into training is... I mean, I think there is 
couple of more fundamental challenges. And that has not always necessarily been the case, but it feels that training often is that stepchild, is that area of military capability that just does not get the right attention, not just in terms of funding, obviously that is often an indication, but in terms of the primacy it has in those institutions. I mean, I don't think I'm saying anything provocative or inflammatory by saying that it often feels in certain countries, and probably the UK might be one of them, where training is not seen as a career-enhancing step. So if you end up in a training role, you might get promoted only that far in an organization. It's not the same thing than if you've had other types of roles. And that is important because it sends a message of how important is training in an institution like the military. I mean, I think if you look where it is in the US, going through a post, we are responsible for delivering training is often seen actually as a key stepping stone to, you know, the next big operational role and then potentially very senior levels of leadership. To be promoted, to be a leader, to be a respectful senior officer, in my view, has to involve you having been part of the critical piece of leadership, which is training others. So there is a cultural element. How important is it, training? You know, is this something that really is at the heart of an organization? And it is sometimes reflected in the way we're looking at the promotion system. And then the other part is how do we treat training when we think about military capability? So it does feel, again, as if it is often an afterthought as opposed to something that should be seen as an intrinsic element of the way military capability gets generated. And again, this is where you know the idea of experimentation can be quite disruptive in this space because once you start embracing experimentation, you're creating more an environment for learning and training throughout the capability generation cycle, as opposed to when you have already designed, developed, and delivered a certain type of capability. So in some ways, we're talking about dealers, we're talking about training as being one of them, but we haven't really turned training into or the realization of training as an aspect, an intrinsic aspect of military capability. And that goes back into, you know, how we procure it, how we fund it, the attention we pay to it. So it is so fundamental, again, to that adaptability to turning any of the service into true learning institutions. And, you know, this is not an easy thing, but it is fundamentally a, a question of culture. And we go back to kind of the institutional piece, right? Because otherwise we, we might equip ourselves with the best technology, but have ultimately failed to turn the technology to our advantage well christina as ever we could continue for another 40 minutes or so there's lots of topics we haven't really covered and maybe that's a good opportunity to come back one day but thank you for coming on and uh, giving us a bit of flavor of the non-technology aspects of training no thank you very much to both it was uh, a pleasure thank you christina as is often the case when we have our guests on, it's the second we press the stop on the record and then we just expand for the next 20, 30 minutes about the topic. And it gets really, you know, it gets really gets into the detail. And, and one of the kind of conversations that we went into after we stopped recording, so I'm trying to give the benefit of the listeners this one, although you can't listen to it, talking about the example of the Ukraine and where probably yeah, Ukraine is, you know, is a clear example of where training has made a significant difference and moving forward with the technology and different concepts like maneuver warfare, et cetera, one side has been able to perform against the odds against a system that hasn't changed and won't hasn't been able to adapt with modern technology. I think the cutting room floor is often the best bit in that sort of <laughs> as as we relax and really get into it after 40 minutes. But yeah, it was great to hear some of those views and maybe some challenges. I think we all know what the challenges are. <laughs> 
Yeah, great to hear. And the thing that I felt, again, as you probably heard from the interview, is that my experience, my opinion is purely based on, on my background. And therefore, my it has to be biased because it's it, I, I draw upon my experience. But again, with Christina, because she hasn't gone through the process, she's got a very kind of independent view on it as well, which is refreshing to be able to hear. Uh, but uh, thank you again for coming on. And uh, let's move on to the tame super tame now journalist that we have which is andy forks from military simulation training magazine here he is yeah thank you i just want to start just looking outside of you know maybe the simulation training uh, i think it's important that open api open ai sorry who are obviously behind chat gpt and other ai tools are famously they've uh, now letting third-party developers integrate their technology uh, via an api but the one i thought was very interesting is a company that is called quizlet and they're not just some startup that for, you know just now they in fact they've been working in this space of online tutoring for a number of years and they there's apps you can download to sort of tests and, and so forth just on your phone. They've been working with OpenAI for three years now, and they're now launching, based on that technology, a technology called QChat. And I think anyone in, in this business just have a look at that news because they, uh, what they're doing. So I think it's being first launched for US students, obviously in America, and then they'll roll it out. So you can actually have a conversation like it is a tutor. I think it's probably difficult to explain right now but you could ask a question like it says what do you want to be quizzed on and you could say i want an introduction to biology and says sure so what is the basic unit of living organisms and then it gives cells so you can start a conversation around that i think it's going to be one to watch it's extremely powerful you can imagine if defense put all its learning documents into the system and then trained its own system separately using on the back of this open ai technology you can imagine how powerful this would be so again this idea of the future is really close i mean ai tutors i know has been around the ai idea has been around for at least 20 years but it just seems to be like oh hold on, hold on. it's happening so there there you go yeah my understanding of chat gpt and ai is that it, it isn't intelligent in terms of it, it doesn't know it's giving you the right answer it, it thinks it is based on an algorithm or it's giving you the insert my lack of knowledge here but it's giving you its best guess as what it should be so Interesting that tutor seems to be the way it's gone, because how does it know that it's quizzing you on the right questions? And how does it know that the answers you give or the answers it thinks it should receive is the correct one? That was the only area that I wouldn't have taken my AI bot, if I'm honest. If you're going to go down learning theory, then what you do is you have a student-centric learning and student-led learning, and the student decides what they want to learn. And they asked that I just had my class. I'm not sure about the subjunctive. Please, can you teach me more about the subjunctive? Yeah, but how does it know the answer it's giving is is the it, correct one? It doesn't one? know. It's not. It's not a living being. Which is the point. So, you know, the use cases that I don't know anything. Well, the use cases that I've that I've used it for, seen it used for in the past, is that you always need the human in the loop, the human who knows the right answer. So, you're using it as a performance enhancing tool to make you do it quicker, faster, better. But you it ultimately will always check the output to ensure that it's accurate and this is taking that one step further where you're teaching someone who knows less and whether or not that throws up some challenges well maybe you should go and try it and ask it about english grammar and say teach me about using the uh, oxford actually it's very good at using the oxford comma so you can put some text in and say please put the oxford comma in the correct place I wouldn't know if it was right or not. Can I just add, though, that, I mean, they have been working for three years, so obviously it's non-trivial. And I, absolutely, I'm sure they've been checking that, Tom. I feel, how can we be sure when we ask a human what they're saying is correct? Everyone needs to be critical. I mean, you can't just assume 
because someone says something that correct. it's correct ever, but, even if it's a professor of whatever. There is a, an element of trust and, and also critical thinking. You're absolutely right. But they are definitely humans and a machine. <laughs> and They're training it on what humans have written. So it's a really dangerous train of thought. It's, Tom, it's a really, then, yeah. Because then we have the conversation about what did you learn at school? I don't remember anything I was taught at school, if that helped. All right. <laughs> <laughs> there were many things taught at school that are no longer true. Well, my excuse is I'm getting on a bit. So, <laughs> And I think this is a topic that I would like to explore more, probably with an AI, AI expert and be able to kind of like ask those questions and get those kind of expert feedback responses to see where what their take takes or challenges with this but it is really exciting and i you know you guys know that i i love ai there's one last ai conversation to have before we move on to maybe the uh, one more article <laughs> so this is interesting article published this week in msnt about the talus and lux carter collaboration and i've been fortunate enough to see this technology sort of under the hood and it's really interesting they're not the only people doing it but but certainly probably one of the more advanced ones where it's taking 2D imagery and making a 3D model that can use through a number of different techniques. One would be work out how high the building is to identifying the type of building or if it's a tree, then popping a tree model in the database and doing this all automatically, which in the past you've had to have a, a small army of artists and designers working on this mm. stuff. So it's really interesting because I think back to your point, Andy, about AI has been around for a while, but actually it's only just starting to get really useful now maybe that's just me yeah i think the interesting is the crossover of communities so this is of interest to the simulation of community simulation and training community it's also interesting to the what you might call the broadly the c4i style the mission operations mm. side whether the communities within defense can get together and talk <laughs> and uh, instead of buying two systems they could buy the same one that's a, a challenge i think for defense procurement let's not get carried away <laughs> <laughs> absolutely that's right yeah, so I'm excited for the use case of that technology is when it comes to kind of like, let's say, mission planning. If you can take real or satellite data that was taken that morning or the day before and run it through the algorithm to produce a, an optimized 3D environment to allow you to do mission planning and or mission rehearsal, that sounds really exciting. And that should be, hopefully, the direction of travel for this kind of technology. Absolutely. I totally I get the use case. It's In fact, it's a use case for a number of communities. And it's a bit of a cliche. Some of this stuff seemed very futuristic, but it's just the future's getting closer all the time in this area of particularly of AI. So another story, very recent, 1st of March, is a story in MS&T, where, in fact, this is, we had a guest author, Ian McCrudden, some of you may know from the European Training Simulation Association, but he interviewed founder and CEO Brody Stanfield, who his company sells a so-called, as real as it gets, battle suit, which <laughs> is a fully immersive gaming suit. But I, if you bear with me, I'll just, just read out a quote just to get the conversation going. So so he says, Brody, that commanders can give orders, but when, how, and if they are carried out well is determined by those in stressful situations who are possibly facing death. He claims this type of stress is the Z factor. And if the Z factor cannot be trained for, then task objectives are at risk and be labelled with greater unpredictability as the stress increases. This stress must therefore be applied and mitigated through learning. And obviously the part of the story is that they sell a battle suit which can give a feeling of being hit 
and so forth. Also, it provides audio feedback. I just wonder you how either of you feel about, I've not personally heard of this Z factor. Is this something that you've ever heard about? A new phrase to me. When I see these types of suits, and they do come around fairly regularly, Tom, you've done infantry training. Now, I think a lot of the time you were either damp or too hot, and they seem to miss those factors. <laughs> if you want that real immersive reality, that is it's the not, case. It's not raining, it's not training. You know, can, that. can you make my socks and feet damp and slightly moldy? Because that would be where it needs to get to, to to build that realism. I mean, that aside, which I acknowledge, Colin, completely. I mean, I've spoken to Brody on a number of occasions, especially because obviously my background in VR dismounted close combat training. So not only that, we've actually built a prototype back in my old company suit, a stretchable suit with tens patches and vibrating haptics as well. So I've got a bit of ex- experience, I suppose, doing something like this. In terms of the, the phrase, the Z factor, never heard of it, but it's the, the concept of bridging the gap between simulation and reality. That's not a new concept. It's just a new phrase, right? Yeah. I mean, I know from some work I did with the British Army a few years ago, uh, virtual reality land training, and a big part of that was to try and introduce more stress into the training. Actually, the experience of being in VR was we were looking at whether that actually is part of making it more stressful than, in fact, you might feel even in live training. Yeah. Interestingly, I could recall 15 years ago, a, a roughly a brigadier saying to me, even for live training, wouldn't it be good if we could have things that could hit you? Obviously, not, <laughs> not real bullets. But <laughs> not think, no, but, you know, things to give that sense of stress and so forth. So, I mean, it is a real issue. Whether this suit is the way to achieve it is obviously be very interesting to follow that. Yeah, I mean, the suit itself, it looks like a stormtrooper outfit. I, th- I can imagine it's really, really effective for games. You know, having looked into it myself, I think, and, and this is a, you know, a couple of years back now, but it would cost-benefit analysis for what it brought to the party, for the cost to integrate it, and then the cost to buy it, then distribute it. Then there's a whole bunch of skin-on-skin contact, so you need to make sure you've got enough inner layers to allow for multiple users it just gets really complicated very quickly then mm. you've got to ask what's the value add what are you bringing i like what you said andy about you know, vr is a an intense situation as soon as you put the headset on anyway because of the resolution isn't always human eye resolution your field of view isn't natural so you, you're instantly increasing the stress levels you throw in being shot at from a 300 meters away and, you, and you're struggling to identify the firing point quite similar to real life that also increases stress and that's realistic military stress i'd like to know where the values of these types of tops or or these types of hardware kind of what it's what kind of realistic environments or stimuli is it trying to replace and what's the training value that it drives i think there's a lot of people written about psychological fidelity it it may be just i mean people get really stressed and annoyed just by dying in a game i mean it's in a way you don't (laughs) need to uh, do you really need to uh, give them physical feedback the mental feedback is enough but having said that you know i think it's uh, for certain situations i'm sure it's uh, could be very valuable we'll see yeah i think i just refer our listeners back to episode 10 which is a psychology behind building better operators where we do talk about the the different layer levels of psychology associated with simulated training and and the different use cases to bring that in so it's worth exploring that if you're interested in this kind of topic great stuff yeah andy thanks again i know i know there's a couple of stories that we'll have to cover next time just to the time to do them justice so uh looking forward to the next thank you colin thank you tom Okay, and that was the news, which wraps it up for another another episode. And just lastly, to our listeners, yeah, I mean, thank you for everyone that does leave a comment on the social media channels, they're really on LinkedIn, <laughs> or send messages to Tom, they are appreciated. But another way you could send your feedback is by putting a review on your preferred 
podcast channel of choice. Only the five star reviews, obviously, if they're lower, four or less, then don't bother. It's not worth your time, is it, really? You know, (laughs) better off just not doing it. Then, you know, that might help spread the word and people might uh, stumble across this podcast. It's fascinating. There's this chart that shows the top 10 government podcasts and how much we are fluctuating compared to some of the kind of contemporaries out there. And it's mainly because we haven't asked anybody because we're a specialist niche industry podcast. There's not a massive call for that, but actually it does make a difference and it increases our score and the higher our score goes the higher up we rank and the more people listen to it and the longer this podcast will survive for so it, we really would and it will make a difference if you do have five minutes in your busy schedules to leave some thoughts and feedback but other than that it's that's us for another week and we'll be back with as we say lots of exciting guests absolutely episode 13's finished went all right didn't it yeah no one died yeah <laughs>